Good evening. It's Sunday, December 15th. This is show number 111. Here we go. Let's go. And good evening. How are you? Welcome to the show. It's good to be back here on the uh, on the show on the podcast this evening. Uh, I am your host Gummo. This is the show that we talk about. Uh, I don't know things that matter. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. But uh, here we are for the hundred and eleventh installment of this thing that we keep doing. Uh, it's and uh, it's wow. It it just keeps growing. I suppose so. Uh, <laughs> Wow. <clears throat> wow. So, uh, you know, uh, welcome to the podcast if you are new. And if you are a um, longtime listener, welcome back again. Uh, sorry about uh, not getting on last week. You know, it was kind of a, it was kind of a thing. Uh, wow. Where do I begin? Uh, you know, uh, loaded up a, uh, loaded up a, um, a, a, an ABF trailer and shipped it uh, across country uh, from Illinois to Florida. And, um, you know, I thought I had all my... Va- <laughs> God. <clears throat> I thought I had all my bases covered, right? So you always think that you do in, in some capacity. Um, but, you know, I had, I had some people out there to load it up and, and it just... Uh, you know, as you are loading these things up, uh, and you realize after s- pretty much staying in the same little junky spot for eight years, you uh, kind of develop a lot of stuff. And so that was one of the key indices there, I suppose. But um, we loaded up as much as we could, and then it started snowing. Uh, the, the The trailer had to be picked up the following Monday. Uh, and it was just, uh, it, it was, it was interesting. Uh, it starts snowing, uh, the ramp up the trailer, uh, be, it was iced over. So, uh, it, it was, it was really uh, a challenge, uh, getting that done. And then, uh, you know, you've got this big gigantic bulkhead in the trailer, you've got to set it in place and you've got to lock it down. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, as physique as I used to be, but uh, you know, I still, you know, I was wiggling it and we got it in there and, you know, we bolted it down and, uh, it, uh, you know, <laughs> and then, <clears throat> and then it was off, uh, and it was in the car, right. With, um, uh, Abner, the cat, uh, and he was at, at the point that we got the trailer loaded, uh, and got, uh, the, the car loaded, uh, for the, um, drive, uh, Abner, uh, my, my longtime, um, cat of, uh, 
17 years. Uh, he was uh, in his final days of uh, cancer. And so uh, we, we, you know, we loaded up the car, we, we took off and, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was certainly a road trip indeed. Um, we got to about halfway and uh, somewhere along the, uh, in Tennessee, um, it, it was just the end for Abner. And so uh, it, it was really a heartbreaking day, um, you know, and as I said, I, you know, I, I got Abner when he was just a little kitten. He was literally like days old. Um, he was an abandoned. Uh, he was abandoned, uh, and um, he was just a little kitten. And raised him uh, for 17 years, and so um, it's really tough. Really tough. Uh, so yeah, um, made made it down uh, completely with all you know. <laughs> all of my uh, stuff and so that that kind of wraps up a 15-year adventure in chicago for me um i'm uh w- flew back up last week uh spent some time with my team in chicago and mumbai uh, and uh, that was kind of it uh jumped on a plane uh this uh a couple days ago and got back uh got back here to the uh, Sunshine State, and uh, this is where I'm at. Uh, and this this is where we will be doing the new, uh, the new, uh, what do I say new? This is where the new settings will surround the same show. So, uh, yeah, so it's good to be, uh, it's good to be home after all of this time, right? I mean, you, you won't hear me bitching about the cold weather uh, anymore in the winter. So I, I know there's like a thousand people out there probably clapping their hands. Uh, so, uh, and it'll add me to the list as well. So, uh, there's that little bit of sunshine coming, uh, coming from my perspective. So, uh, and you know, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been kind of interesting, you know, just getting, getting things, you know, when you just literally just throw everything that you have away and that's what that's what i did um (laughs) my neighbor uh mike um he was i was i was just i was just leaving all kinds of shit stuff behind and so my neighbor mike's like hey man the hell what are you doing and i'm like i don't know i'm just leaving all this crap behind he's like you know it's like i'll take this shit and so i he came over and got it and uh yeah man uh miss you mike uh mike was uh my neighbor for about eight years and uh we uh we definitely um we definitely became pretty cool neighbors and uh so yeah mike uh definitely miss you man um said uh i said my uh as i said i, I worked with a, an exceptional team of engineers this past year uh as well in um <clears throat> in what i do of course and uh i you know spent spent one last uh round with my team uh hung out with them um and again you know uh what an amazing team uh that i work with and uh, definitely a shout out to uh, the you guys and gals uh, in Chicago and Mumbai. Um, Meyer, uh, Steve, Steve in uh, Indiana, yeah. Uh, Rodrigo, Tosif, Tafik, Manali, Ismail, uh, Mike. Mike's kind of new. Jonathan's kind of new. I don't know. Jonathan's kind of seasoned at this point, but nevertheless, Mike, Jonathan, and Kevin King, uh, I will miss you guys beyond any belief. Um, it, it just words can't describe uh, the the humbleness uh, 
that I, I felt when uh, working with all of you, and uh, I will certainly miss you. Uh, and so, yeah, that, I kind of wrapped that up in Chicago uh, this past week as well, um, and uh, beginning some new uh, journeys. Uh, you know, um, long story short, uh, you know, you sometimes, sometimes on. <laughs> Sometimes on your resume, uh, you have to be a little bit more specific. And so I, I wasn't that specific on my resume. Uh, and it's not for any, you know, trying to hide anything. Well, not really just talking about a few things. And uh, a few of you out there nodding your head, grinning, knowing what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, I got to, you know, uh, you, you have to provide credentials nowadays, right? And so I, I was, you know, I obtained these said credentials, but uh, in an in a entirely different fashion than normal people would. And so uh, I've committed myself to um, obtaining the proper credentials in the proper name these days uh, and moving forward with that as well. Sort of uh that, that sort of will shut the door on the last of my old black hatting um, days when I was younger and not making the best of decisions, but uh, looking forward to working with my new team uh, as well and uh, all of the new interesting uh, roads that uh, my journey is about to take me on. And so uh, it, it, it certainly feels like um, something that I want to get into and, uh, and that's where I'm going to be. And so very happy. I'm very happy in that regard. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, it was kind of tough for me to stay in the loop on everything, uh, over the past, uh, few weeks because it's, it's really been, you know, as I said, you know, we lost Abner, um, and, um, you know, it was just, uh, you know, a lot of, they were, I wouldn't say personal struggles, but they were definitely personal challenges. And, uh, it's good that I was, uh, I, I feel and I, I feel almost, uh, I, I feel almost, uh, humbled again. Uh, actually, I do feel extremely humbled by uh, the opportunities that um, uh, I've been afforded by uh, some very uh, generous and, and lovely people uh, over the past few weeks that have uh, pretty much peeled the layers back on my background. And so uh, my, my uh, definite nod smiles to all of uh, them as well. And they know who they are. Uh, what's been going on? A lot has been going on. Uh, too much has been going on. And, and in fact, uh, when I was, um, when I was, I woke up this morning, right? And, uh, I started reading through some of the, um, you know, some news reports and, and whatnot. And, uh, it, it was, it was kind of interesting to see, uh, what's been going on, uh, as, as you know, most, uh, most specifically, um, you know, recently, uh, what I've uncovered is that, um, uh, According to the BBC in uh, the UK, uh, U.S. authorities have filed charges against two Russian nationals alleged to be uh, part of a global crime organization called the Evil Corp. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I've never, <laughs> I never heard of these guys, but uh, nevertheless, an indictment uh, named Mass—I don't even know if I'm going to get these names right—Maxim Yakubits and Igor Tur Turashev. I could say that Igor Turashev, Turashev. I like that name. That's a cool name, Turashev. Uh, they, of course, who remain at large as figures in a group which used malware to steal millions of dollars in more than forty countries. Uh, it's reported that those affected by the hacks include schools and religious organizations. 
It's also alleged that um, this that they worked this team uh, worked for Russian intelligence. Uh, speaking at a news conference, Assistant Attorney General Brian here comes another long name that I just can't pronounce. It's either Polish or Russian. How do it's uh, whatever uh, said that the attacks were among the worst computer hacking and bank fraud schemes of the past decade. Uh, the team is also accused of leading Moscow-based Evil Corp, uh, while um, Mr. Turashev allegedly acted as an administrator. Uh, the pair are thought to still be in Russia, uh, though um, Thursday, last Thursday's indictment came after a multi-year investigation by the FBI and by Britain's National Crime Agency and Cybersecurity Center. Uh, U.S. authorities alleged that the group stole at least $100 million dollars uh, using some software called Bugat uh, or AKA Drydex. Uh, the malware was spread through so-called phishing campaigns, uh, which uh, encouraged victims to click on malicious links sent by email from supposed, uh, supposedly trusted entities. Uh, uh, once a computer was infected, of course, the group stole personal banking information, which was used to transfer funds. Uh, a network of money launderers targeted by the NCA and Britain's Metropolitan Police were then utilized to funnel the crime proceeds to members of Evil Corp. Uh, eight additional members of the network have also been sentenced to a total of over 40 years in uh, prison. Uh, U.S. authorities went on to say that uh, the team was also involved in a similar scheme using another form of malware known as Zeus, uh, which uh, stole more than $70 million from victims' bank accounts. Uh, and if you went to, uh, I, think, I think Zeus was actually discussed back in 2016 at that Hope Conference, if I'm not mistaken. It's back in the day and uh, whatever. The NCA uh, also alleged that uh, they spent more than uh, over uh $328,000 on his wedding. Uh, he also had a customized Lamborghini with a personal license plate, which read thief in Russian. Uh, in a separate statement, the U.S. Treasury uh, Department alleged that since 2017, the team worked on projects for the Russian state, including the theft of confidential documents and cyber-enabled operations. Uh, so, uh, of course, the U.S. Department of Justice has offered a $5 million reward for these two guys. Uh, and uh, you know how that goes. So, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. That's some, uh, that's some serious allegations. And uh, if true, those are some serious crimes. Uh, and so... Uh, I do remember those. Uh, I do remember those Zeus malware uh, specifically because I had a network uh, infected by uh, some of it. And so, um, yeah, uh, very interesting malware. Uh, also, as I was reading the news this morning, <sighs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, and listen, I, I've, uh, I'll tell you what. Hang on, let me. You know, you know, you know, we all get our information from some source, right? And so you have to use a web browser and then you go to these websites and then there's ads that fly in. I mean, where, where, Never mind. oh, I did show, uh, what, <laughs> listen, if I haven't said it before, if you are using, I know sometimes you have to use Linux, but listen, if you use Linux, there's a, uh, if you open up the terminal and type in L Y N X links, uh, it's a contextual browser that doesn't have all of that silliness. Uh, and I recommend that, uh, because it doesn't load any silliness. It none. Once you get used to it, it's kind of quirky, but then you get information like the internet was intended to uh, be. It's a 
pro tip, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. Hmm. Uh, so I rediscovered Publix fried chicken and, and uh, Publix fried chicken rediscovered how, um, how much I should not eat. Uh, leaving that at that, I, um, <clears throat> I also woke up this morning. What in the God's name is, are these ads? Uh, New Orleans, the city of New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. Um, they are currently in the middle of a uh, citywide cyber attack. Uh, and, you know, we all know how that goes, right? Uh, these uh, cities are uh, specifically targeted uh, uh, for these type of attacks. Uh, and uh, it's going to continue. Uh, and uh, there's also a new twist on these type of attacks. Not only are, are cities uh, being targeted, uh, so are small businesses, medium businesses, and large businesses as well. Uh, and, you know, it was kind of interesting when, when it was kind of interesting discovering just how close that hit to home because uh, when I was uh, when I was working out of my Chicago office, uh, right across the hall was a company which I will which will, of course, remain unnamed, uh, which w there was a company right across the um, the hallway dealio uh and they were the victim of a very large uh scale cyber attack earlier in the in the of this year and so every day i <clears throat> excuse me every day i stepped off the elevator i'm like oh my god you know like oh anyhow so uh, hang on for a minute let me uh, this whole uh the pollen thing you know you get it So yeah, sorry. Uh, I ran out of stuff to drink. So you know, again, I've spoken in depth, out of depth, in the water, out of the water about these cyber attacks and how uh, and how to protect yourself in the event of these cyber attacks and what to do in the event of these cyber attacks. And uh, you know, a lot of people's um, viewpoints vary. You know, it's like a potato, potato. But uh, when it happens to you, what what is your ultimate plan in uh, when when that happens, right? So. If you haven't put together a disaster recovery plan, uh, or if you have not reviewed it uh, within the past three months, yeah, you absolutely should, uh, because it's it's essential that you do that. Um, and I don't I don't say that specifically for businesses either. I mean, I speak from a business centric point of view when I in, in that capacity sometimes, but I, that really pertains to everyone. Uh, you know, you should have. You should have a plan B and, and a plan C for when these type of issues happen to you. And, um, and of course, uh, your network, your machine, uh, all of that stuff as well. Uh, listen, and um, it, it doesn't get any easier because, as I said, you know, um, a lot of criminals are uh, adding a new twist to uh, cybersecurity, uh, or not cybersecurity, but these, uh, you know, these, these issues, uh, these, these cyber issues... Um, the fuck is that oh my god i don't even know how this works anymore <sighs> crash dude we we've got to get uh 
can, can we, can I get a contextual browser in here, dude, or will that not work? What? All right. Well, I mean, this, this, I click something and it's like something pops up, a video starts playing and I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I weep for the future. I really do. Uh, listen, as I said, the, the new twist on ransomware could be getting even nastier as, um, as recently reported, uh, in, so, as, uh, in several recent cases, um, <laughs> that, that a couple of ransomware gangs have not only just encrypted data, but they also threatened to leak the data as well. Um, and you know, it's, it's <laughs> some of these, it's not funny and I know I'm not laughing. Crash is making me laugh. It's not funny, Crash. It's really not funny. Um, so far, it's it's impacted about 948 government agencies, uh, educational establishment, healthcare providers, and a potential cost in excess of 75 billion with a B. So far, the impacted organizations included 103 federal, state, and municipal governments and agencies and 759 healthcare providers in 86 universities, colleges, and school districts. Uh, you know, the, these, um, these sort of, these sort of issues, uh, weigh heavily, uh, in the, those type of industries. And so, you know, uh, worst case scenario for, uh, governments was of course the data loss. Now the worst case, uh, in any case nowadays is the data, including the public's personal information. Uh, and so, uh, you know, once this information is compromised, of course, it's sold, stolen from one group to another. And that's, you know, it's kind of weird. You know, and all of this, all of this stuff, you know, really, r really, really um, just, you know, boggles my mind on how. Um, I don't know. I'll keep on going. Listen, uh, I found something cool. I like <laughs> I like cool stuff. Uh, this is a Sniff Jam and Hijack Bluetooth Low Energy Device. It's called with uh, Beetle Jack. I guess that's what it's called. Uh, Bluetooth Low Energy Swiss Army Knife, uh, or otherwise known as B T L E J A C K. Beetle Jack is a small small. It's a small software client designed to be used with. Ah, uh, the BBC micro, what the hell is that? The BBC micro bit mini PC and can be used with one or more devices running a dedicated firmware. Once installed, you will be able to sniff jam and hijack Bluetooth low energy devices. Uh, current, the current version of the tool, uh, which is 2.0 supports BLE 4.X and 5.X. Uh, of course, what does this do? It relies on one or more BBC microbit devices running a dedicated firmware. So you may also want to use an Adafruit's Blue Fruit LE sniffer or an NRF51822 eval kit. Uh, and so uh, check that out. Uh, you will need a Unix-based system as well, you know, like a Raspberry Pi or uh, you can use a BBC microbit as well. Um, you know, you can't use the Intel compute sticks uh, just yet, but, uh, I believe with a little bit of hacking and, um, you know, uh, you know, modifications, you would be able to use an Intel compute stick. So check that out. It's kind of neat. I kind of dig it. And here comes C crash. This is what I'm talking about, man. See, it just, 
how, how do I stop that? <sighs> For God's sake. Listen. All right. All right. Um, Ada Lovelace, a mathematician. Have, has anyone heard of her? Anyone? Anyone on the uh, uh, Bueller? <laughs> hey, listen, once you get to know about Ada Lovelace, though, uh, she lived from 1815 to 1852 and her life and work. It's difficult not to become more or less obsessed right with her. Uh, she was truly remarkable. She was a truly remarkable woman, unquestionably one of the most important women in science history. Uh, she was born in 1815. She was the daughter to Lord Byron and um, Lady Byron, and who were married for just a year when Ada, only five weeks old, Lady Byron left her lord and never saw him again. They eventually separated, and Byron died in 1824. When Ada was born, her parents were extremely poor. One of the reasons for the separation was that Lady Byron could no longer stand the stress of bailiffs regularly knocking on the door, and in some cases, camping out in the front room. But curiously enough, Byron was poverty-stricken by choice and blah, 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 and all that. Uh, listen, if you, if you want to hear more about that, just Google who she was. Uh, she was a very important uh, figure in um, science. She was a mathematician, and, a, and a, um, she was one of the com first computer scientists. I've got a lot to talk about tonight, and I'm not trying to cut it short there, but uh, I also want to give mention to George Lohrer, who co-invented the barcode. Uh, he recently passed away as well. Uh, if you're not sure what a barcode is, uh, barcodes, which, you know, are made up of those little black strips on the back of things, <laughs> on the back of things. Uh, the idea was pioneered by fellow IBM employees, uh, and it was not until Laura developed a scanner that could read the codes digitally that took off. Uh, last Thursday, he died in his home in Wendell, North Carolina, and his funeral will be held on Monday. Uh, it was while working as an electrical engineer with IBM that George Lawler fully developed the Universal Product Code, or the UPC as it's become known. He developed a scanner that could read codes digitally, so he also used strips rather than the circles that were not practical to print. Uh, the UPC went on to revolutionize everything in the world, IBM said in a tribute last week. In the early 70s, grocery sh stores faced mounting costs and a labor-intensive need to put price tags on everything. Guess what? The UPC system came into effect, and they used lasers and computers to quickly process items via scanning. This meant fewer pricing errors and easier accounting. Uh, the, pro the first product ever scanned was in Ohio in June of 1974, and it was a packet of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Chewing Gum. It's now on display at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, if you want to see that. Uh, fellow IBM employee Norman Woodland, who died in 2012, is considered the pioneer of the barcode idea, which he initially based on Morse code. Although he patented the concept in the 50s, he was unable to develop it. It would take a few more years for Laura to bring the idea to fruition with the help of low-cost lasers and computing technology. And so that's kind of an important thing, right? Uh, lasers and uh, barcodes. And we still use those today for almost everything. 
Uh, you know, and uh, if you search a little bit around, you, I'm sure you can find some open source UPC scanning software out there. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. I think it's interesting. I don't know. Uh, and one other thing that I found interesting was the fact that uh, most recently, uh, you know, again this morning, you know, I was reading uh, that you know you can now buy a laser with a thirty million watt peak power uh, from who is that from? Amazon. Amazon.com. You know, we need to talk about Amazon later, but. Uh, You can get a tattoo removing gun from eBay and it's a million watts. So you can get a million watt laser from eBay. Let me see how much it costs. So if you're not familiar with the power of that type of laser, that type that type of laser can actually ruin or fry the lens of a camera. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about this evening, or I wanted to go into more detail about as well is, you know, there's cameras everywhere in this world and there are there. It's the never ending eye. It's the never ending thing that never stops, never blinks, blah, blah, blah. But there's there, there, you know, how do you do You know, there will be a, a time when you need to disable a camera. Uh, and I'm not talking about for nefarious purposes either. I'm talking about in, in a, 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 either a life or a death situation or um, in a situation to where a camera just simply needs to be um, neutralized, whether or not it's a rogue robot, whether or not it's a rogue drone uh, you know, flying by its camera. You never know. And so you need to take uh, uh, action against that. And so that got me kind of thinking like, you know, wow, you know, you can uh, buy a million watt laser that can fry a camera camera lens from eBay. Uh, what else can you do with a laser? Can you really fry camera lenses with a laser? I bet you can. And, you know, with more cameras, you've got more AI, and so everybody's panicking. But, you know, I say, hey, <laughs> there has to be another way. And so this is a way you can take a uh, high power laser and uh, disable a camera lens. And so I wanted to share that with you this evening. Uh, of course, you know, these are things that, uh, you know, as I said, are for life-saving events and life-saving purposes. If you use them for nefarious purposes, uh, you know, you shouldn't, right? All right, great. So uh, with that said, uh, take a listen. Let me know what you think. No, don't let me know what you think. Make a decision on your own, but I wanted to share it with you anyhow, and I'll come back after this. All right, are we good? Yeah. Hi, folks. Um, this is my first Nauticon, so let me be um, one of the probably first to welcome you here. Um, my name is Ethan Dix. Among other things I do during the day, I'm also an instructor at the Columbus Idea Foundry, our hackerspace in Columbus, where we have instructors, classes, uh, tools to rent, things to play with, things to build. And uh, I'm here today to talk about lasers and all the things we uh, use them for, and where they came from, and things we, uh, things we can build ourselves with them. So for those that may not actually realize, it's not perfectly an acronym. There's a, there's a term for this I've just forgotten, but it's nearly an acronym. It's a light amplification through stimulated emission of radiation. And each of those parts is important because that's what makes laser different than just a light bulb or an LED. Is Obviously, it's light, so we have photons. It's 
amplified light, and the way it's amplified is because it is um, stimulated emission, which we'll go into in a bit, and um, the R, I think, just to, make, just to round it out. Specifically, stimulated emission is, is sort of the physics part of this, is where you have the E2 and E1 are states of atoms in whatever material, material you're lasing, and so you have a photon coming in with a particular energy, that's the incident photon on the far left, and that one photon excites the, uh, the atom, releases energy, and what comes out is a pair of photons with identical frequency and energy. And that's the important part. They're in phase, they're the same frequency, and the, uh, the mechanism is you basically bounce things around until you have enough light going out the front that, that you've got um, the, uh, the synchronized light. And that's, that's the important part, is that they're in phase and the same frequency. And collimation is, uh, is part of that as well, is that they're not just the same color and the same frequency, but they're all going in the same direction. And the combination of all three of those elements uh, make uh, lasers quite powerful for things like um, um, illuminating at long distances, for getting the power you need to the far end. So for laser cutters and laser etchers, you're not dispersing, whereas a, a, an ordinary LED or just an incandescent light bulb, the light travels in all directions. And so if you've got a 60-watt light bulb, that's 60 watts over a shell, and the shell expands outward. And so the further away you get, the inverse square law means if you double the distance, you quarter the power perceivable that distance. Whereas a laser, it's all going along one beam, and there's a little bit of dispersion, nothing's perfect, but you still get nearly all the power, even if you've doubled the distance, the vast majority of the power still goes to the same spot, just twice as far away. The theory behind lasers goes back to Einstein, after he did his uh, uh, general theory of relativity. the. Um, Sorry, after he did the special theory of relativity, he came up with the theory behind stimulated emission and said this should be happening because uh, he did the photoelectric effect first, relativity, and then this sort of fell out of some of his work. And then 30-ish years later, again, in the theoretical sense, holography was invented, but they couldn't make them. They just simply knew that if we had these devices, we could make holograms because uh, it takes this kind of radiation, again, synchronized, collimated, same frequency, to produce a hologram. And the very first um, devices that could make this kind of energy used microwaves, radio waves, rather than light. Uh, those are masers. Those are um, um, still in use today in, in certain uh, uh, communications, long distance communications things. Um, <coughs> laser spectroscopy was the first theoretical application of specifically light frequencies to um, uh, illuminate a subject and then analyze what that subject is based on on what comes off of it and finally year you know after each of these theories of if only we had this stuff we could use it for the following applications they finally made a laser and that was uh, folks may or may not be familiar with the first lasers were a solid rod they were, they're called solid state lasers and the ruby laser was literally a rod of synthetic ruby uh, about the size of a pencil a couple inches long with a full silvering on one end and a nearly full silvering on the other end. And the whole thing was stuck inside a spiral flash tube, and the tube would flash, and the photons from the tube would, would hit, the, hit the ruby, and because of the chemistry of the compounds it takes to make a synthetic ruby, that's a naturally lasing material, the 
that cascade of stimulated emission happens where as long as the photons that, that are stimulated happen to be going axial, axially along that rod, they'll bounce off of one of the two mirrors and they'll go the other direction. And so eventually as they go back and forth and back and forth, all the ones that are just slightly off will find their way out the sides. And only the ones that are columnated will end up bouncing back and forth until eventually, um, because one end is partially silvered, they do leak out the one end in preference of the other end. So you get a single directional beam from a pulse of light. Uh, it's very inefficient as you can imagine because if random energy goes in, only a small fraction is gonna be traveling that ideal path. But it at least proved the theory and they did have the first working lasers, but it would take um, fractions of a second to charge. It was a pulse and a pulse of laser, would, laser light would come out and they would recharge the tube, pulse, another one. And those are the very first lasers they had. Following on the next year, they found a way to stimulate gases to make those lays. And we, we use those today uh, for higher power operations. For instance, if you're used to using uh, for laser cutters or laser etchers, those typically have gas lasers. And then again, just one year later, they found a way to take semiconductors, which were new at the time. LEDs were only a few years old, but they found a way to make an LED junction that not only was a diode and emitted light, but emitted coherent light, and we use those all over the place today. A couple years later, they specifically upped the energy from visible light ranges. CO2 laser is important because it's, a, it's an ultraviolet range, uh, sorry, it's an, infra, it's an infrared light range laser. And then finally in 1980, much later, they were able to get lasers in the X-ray frequencies to be generated, which is useful for astronomy and useful for uh, certain kinds of manufacturing processes where you're really worried about the frequency of the light. When you're making chips, for example, you need to be able to turn those tight corners on, on the small uh, features you're making. But most of the work really took place between, in terms of manufacturing and getting the physics of, of lasers as we use them today, the, the bulk of the work really took place in the early 60s, and it took until the late 70s into the early 80s, so they really started seeing a lot of commercial application. They became affordable and easy enough to make that we could see them everywhere. Talked about different kinds earlier. Uh, the solid state uh, using uh, ruby is one. Uh, yttrium uh, garnet is another. Uh, we're, we still use YAG lasers for a lot of things. The, the hallmark of solid state, as I said, is they're pulsed. You have a, a physical rod of crystal and you, you pulse light into it. It produces a pulsed output. Gas, you put electricity in and a continuous beam of light comes out. Various gases will laze. Helium neon is the classic original red laser pointer. Before we had semiconductor laser pointers, classrooms had helium neon red lasers. Argon, CO2, nitrogen is an ultraviolet laser. Um, chemical lasers are interesting. Those are uh, sort of a offshoot. They're used typically in weapons technology because they involve combustion of a chemical compound to produce energy that comes out as coherent light. So coil is a, is a copper, um, I'm trying to think what, the, uh, uh, the C in coil is copper, for example. DEF is deuterium fluoride, hydrogen fluoride, and you're literally igniting. You're doing a chemical reaction, and the output is laser light. Very high intensity, multiple megawatts. Dye lasers are an interesting exception. They came on before semiconductor lasers and after solid state lasers. They're tunable. By changing the concentration and the kinds of dyes in your liquid, you can change the frequency of light produced from the lasing. And so they're an interesting thing where you can, for instance, in spectroscopy, you could hit a, a subject with a dye laser and then vary the frequency of the light slightly to get different kinds of um, data to show up in your return beam. Metal vapor. 
Uh, same thing as chemical, where you're, in this case, you're vaporizing metal, and the energy in the vaporous gas cloud produces uh, the lasing effect, and then the light is emitted. Uh, those tend to be helium and some metal compound, helium cadmium, helium mercury. Um, I got helium cadmium twice there, must like it. Uh, neon copper is another one. The uh, interesting thing, of course, notice is that uh, it's typically a, uh, much like the gas lasers, it's helpful, although not required, to have a, a noble gas. Those are the ones in the, the far right side of the uh, periodic table that have a full electron shell. And just that, the nature of those lends itself to, to the, the effect. And then semiconductor lasers, like we see in CD players and laser pointers and everywhere else these days, are uh, typically a, a gallium nitride or indium gallium nitride or some other combination of those compounds that uh, is slightly different than a regular LED, but um, uh, th those all tend to laze quite well for us. And we have a variety of uses of lasers. Um, uh, entertainment is, is one of the easiest ones. We see them all over. I've got uh, examples there of laser light shows. Uh, going back to the, the originally, P Pink Floyd was a favorite. Uh, laser Floyd was a big deal in the mid-70s. And uh, I myself uh, attended an uh, Alan Parsons laser show or two in my lifetime. Um, holograms in the bottom corner. Uh, who, who, who here ever saw um, Logan's Run? with Michael York. They had the, the interrogation sequence where they made a laser of Michael York's head and spun it around and, and they had him mouthing the words uh, carefully. Those were some of the earliest color holograms that they had. Um, down in the lower corner is a, um, a standard DVD player laser. Infrared is used for typically uh, CD and audio, uh, data CD and audio CDs, whereas uh, these days for um, for uh, our uh, video uh, watching, we tend to go with Blu-ray, which is really more of a violet than a blue, but it's uh, in the blue frequencies. It took a long time to get that high of an energy of semi semiconductor laser. Reds and infrareds were easy. Blues are much harder, just like with LEDs. Same, same issues in physics to work out. And uh, who here has played laser tag? So, yeah, a lot of fun there. In science, that's a little hard to see, but on the far side is what's called LIDAR. And just like radar is radio ranging and detection, LIDAR is ranging and detection using light. That's an image of a LIDAR being used. It's an argon laser being shot up to about 100,000 feet to range uh, clouds, ice clouds in the stratosphere for doing ozone hole detection and, uh, and monitoring. So that is a laser almost the size of these two tables laying on its side in a building and then mirrors shooting up through, the, uh, through a hole in the roof, and they literally go um, 100,000 feet in the air, bounce off of ice crystals, and are captured back. It's a chopped beam, so in a sense, if you were to slow it all down, you'd see a slug of light as it travels about one nanosecond per foot. So uh, I forget how many hundreds of feet long it is, but it's a few nanoseconds of light, goes out of the instrument, goes up to the clouds, bounces off, comes back down, gets read in, and then the next one shoots out. It, uh, you can sort of see it pulsing. So it's uh, pulsing at a, at a few, um, uh, few dozen times a second. Uh, and this, this is definitely what they call in astronomy a put-your-eye-out laser, as opposed to a cut-your-finger-off laser. Um, the blue and purplish one is a uh, laser spectroscopy rig. And the idea there is you illuminate a subject with laser light. You see what returns. Sometimes you also have multiple types of beams you can emit to get different sorts of patterns back. Uh, but just like uh, spectroscopy, looking at, at the uh, surface of the sun, for example, to see what elements the sun is made of by what lines are absorbed, you can illuminate a subject, see what lines don't come back, and you can then um, determine what the material is made of. 
and in the bottom corner is a very complicated diagram of something lasers are used for only recently, which is laser cooling, where you can take a uh, clot of cold gas and by applying lasers in all directions, you can effectively randomize and minimize their motion. So you're, you're hemming them in so that they want to vibrate, but if you keep them from vibrating, they basically shed their energy and energy of motion we, we call heat. So if you pin them in, you can cool off individual atoms, and it's how they're doing some of the uh, near absolute zero sorts of experiments, Einstein-Bose condensates and a few other things, by, by using lasers to uh, extract the heat from a, uh, a subject. Manufacturing, laser cutters, uh, top right is laser centering. Um, I'm sure folks here have lately especially heard of 3D printing. One of the varieties of 3D printing uses lasers where you take a granular powder, uh, can be metal, can be plastic, and you apply a laser-drawn pattern to the surface. The heat from the laser fuses those particles together that what you don't hit with the laser stays granular. You then apply a new layer of material and you hit that layer with a laser, it fuses to the layer below it and to itself and you build up the item one layer at a time. But instead of like a MakerBot which extrudes hot plastic, laser sintering takes granular material and builds it up and you can work in metal, which is very handy. Uh, over on the uh, bottom left uh, is, a, is a laser scanner uh, for barcodes and other, other sorts of things like that. It's a little hard to see from here, but inside the mechanism are a series of mirrors and holographic lenses. One of the interesting properties of holograms is if you take a hologram of a lens, it will behave to laser light the same way that a, a, the real physical glass lens behaves to ordinary light. And so when you scan your groceries, the reason why you see the beams going every which way is underneath the counter is a carousel full of different sorts of lenses that are rotated very quickly. And so when you wave your groceries across, it's being scanned 30, 50, 100, 200 times in quick succession. And one of those lasers eventually, when you hear the beep, that's the hardware telling you one of the pictures it got back, it was able to interpret as a full barcode with checksum and says, yes, I like that number and you don't know which particular orientation, which time, but because the lenses are constantly rotating and you're also rotating, it gets hundreds of chances to sample that barcode in various distortions and realignments. That's what, uh, that's what those are. And it's a little dark to see, but in addition to laser cutting, you can do laser etching. So the numbers on the circuit board were just engraved lightly into the surface. So marking, if anybody here has an RSA tag, for instance, and you turn it over and look on the back, you'll see a serial number and you'll see a date that was laser marked. Communications. There's... Um, uh, fiber optic communications is now widespread. It was a big deal to go from copper to fiber, whereas in the old days, if you wanted 10,000 conversations to go between New York and Chicago, you needed 10,000 wire pairs. And with lasers between time, domain, um, uh, multiplexing, meaning you can take individual conversations, chop them up and stick them on the same fiber, and as well as frequency domain multiplexing, where you can put multiple frequencies of light on the same fiber, you can pack a lot more than 10,000 conversations on 10,000 fibers. And the other benefit is 10,000 fibers is a fraction of the size of 10,000 copper pairs. Uh, the um, uh, top right, you'll see uh, a uh, diagram showing two different kinds of, of laser um, transmission through fiber. If you've ever worked in a network operations center and worked with fiber optic network cabling, if it's meant to be used in the same room typically, 
it may be LED, it might be low power laser, but it's probably what they call multi-mode, which is the zigzag line at the top, meaning that you just basically shoot light in the pipe and it, as long as it's within a, a narrow confinement, which is what part of what the mechanical, uh, they call terminations, down in the bottom you can see various fibers and, ter and termination ends, they help align the, the, uh, the LED or the laser down the pipe, but inside the pipe what's happening is different frequencies, especially if it's LED, uh, may take different paths, and it's, a, it's a, uh, not quite a straight line path, so if you've got 100 feet of fiber, mentioned before light moves about a nanosecond per foot, you're actually traveling more than that 100 feet, so it takes a little bit more than 100 nanoseconds to get to the other end because you're taking this longer path. Whereas if you want to move your, your data between New York and Chicago over a fiber, that's going to absorb light every time it bounces, so you want that to bounce as minimally as possible. You also don't want to waste extra time. You don't want to lose 20 or 30 percent of your time. So you use single-mode fiber, which is harder to build, harder to align, harder to terminate, but you get much more efficient transmission, you get faster transmission, and um, you see it's a much cleaner looking path. And I'm, I'm lumping in laser printers under communication, because using to do printed communication, it's an outgrowth of zerography. Zerography was uh, 1960s, late, late 50s, early 60s invention that was commercially available in the 70s, where if you Xerox something, you take the original, put it on a plate, light is used, you shine on the original, it reflects and hits a charged drum, and where the, where the light hits the charged drum, the charge is dissipated, where the light does not hit the charged drum, the, the charge retains. You rotate that th past uh, electrostatically attracted powder, sticks to the drum, rolls onto the paper, gets fused down, and you have a Xerox. Laser printing is the same thing. The difference is there's no original. You're scribbling on the drum with a laser to do that charge removal. And I know uh, the first laser printer I used was about $5,000 in the mid-80s, and now they, uh, they, they cost a couple hundred bucks everywhere every day. They've gotten so much cheaper to use. In security, We've got uh, a variety of things. There's the classic uh, spy movie, uh, light beams everywhere. Uh, I, I don't know how many 60s uh, movies had uh, light beams that the, the cat burglar had to evade to, to, to get to the jewels, to get to the painting, to get to the statue. But uh, and even, even into the 80s, they were doing that with, with Tom Cruise and a few other things. But it does work. Um, there, uh, has anyone here been to COSI in Columbus, the Science Museum? Has anyone been to the, the adventure exhibit inside COSI? It was sort of an Indiana Jones-like exploration area. I got one hand there, very good. They have inside there, one of, the, one of the rooms is you've got to get past, they call the Eyes of Scorn. So the, the doors open as you walk up, and then you step in, the doors close behind you, and they turn on a low-power laser pointer quality laser, and the room is full of mist, so you can see the beam, and your, your goal is to dodge the beam and get through the room to the other side to the goal to receive your reward of a, a piece of the puzzle. Um, security in lasers also involves uh, uh, holography, just like entertainment. Uh, there's now holograms on a number of currencies around the world. And uh, the same sorts of um, uh, holograms you'll see on uh, credit cards and software and other things where they want to prove authenticity and identity. And then um, another interesting use for lasers and securities is for eavesdropping. And a lot of folks don't realize this, but if you're standing in a room, it's not just noise from construction equipment that gets through. Any, any conversation, we're vibrating the window from the air that uh, we're using to make sound, and lasers are sensitive enough, that whole in-phase thing, you can, you can detect 
minute, minute changes in distance with that. And by sending a, a light beam out to the window and then picking up the return and amplifying that small change in the distance between the rig and the window, you can turn that back into sound waves. And the, uh, I, I looked into trying to doing, doing a demo, but I could not afford to bring a rig in for that, sadly. Because you do need basically for any, any reasonable distance so they won't see you doing it, basically um, a telescope to be able to uh, pick up the reflections off of the window. So uh, laser safety is important. Uh, I've worked in a few places where um, I, I know people. I unfortunately I, I uh, so far escaped any injury, but I do know people who have certain spots they can't see in. Uh, if they, they go to the optometrist and they show them a picture, it, it looks like somebody was shooting up the back of their retina with a BB gun, just from various exposures. Um, laser pointers, the small ones, uh, like uh, these guys over here, these are pretty... These are pretty harmless. Um, you can damage your eye with these, but you've really got to just kind of really get into it and hold it there and so on. It, it's easier to hurt your eyes by looking at the sun than with a low power laser pointer. But by the time you start getting into industrial processes, if you're going to be etching or cutting or exposing, uh, exposing things, it's higher power and it, it's, it's a lot easier to, uh, to be injured than you think. It's even possible to have eye injuries in telecommunications from not, not the, so much the in-building low-power multi-mode lasers, but the, the lasers used with single-mode fiber, those are powerful enough to cause eye injuries. So um, the, uh, the best thing, of course, is be in places where you're not going to be directly exposed, but one of the risks is um, if there's anything in the path, metal. So uh, that's one of the reasons why it's important to take off watches and jewelry when working around uh, un uh, uncovered lasers. Um, or if you're moving things around, if there's anything in the room that happens to reflect it back, that can be uh, a momentary uh, lapse, can, can produce a, a lifetime injury, as your retina does not grow back. Um, there are uh, there's eyewear you can get, and I definitely, if you're going to work with anything st stronger than, you know, anything ever got on the table, I would recommend it. Fortunately, things like laser cutters tend to have interlocks. So if you go to a, a fab lab or a, a hacker space and use a, use a laser cutter, the lid is absorptive. And even if something inside reflects the light, it's going to hit the lid and not get out and not get in your eyes. And as soon as you lift that lid, it's going to cut the power and the laser is not going to get out and again, cause injury. But um, if you're doing your own experiments, building your own things, by all means, uh, pay attention and be careful. So just got a couple little things here to show off. Um, as I said, I was talking earlier with uh, our cameraman here, and I'm sorry I didn't catch your name, Dave. Um, he, uh, he attempted to make some holograms in the past. I just received this hologram kit. I ordered it some time ago, but uh, my package ended up in, I think it was Pennsylvania, and this guy in Pennsylvania's package ended up in my house. So we got that straightened out, but he did not receive the kit until yesterday. But I can at least show you how it works, even if I can't show you a hologram that I made myself yet. So what we have is a battery-powered um, higher-power laser. This is a class 3A, so it's below half a watt. And it doesn't sound like much, but remember I mentioned all that energy goes to the same spot. Half a watt is quite powerful and will cause eye injury. Uh, this is below that. It's the sort of the next step below, so it's more powerful than an ordinary laser pointer you might fiddle with. Um, and it's definitely a, a, a don't-stare-directly-at-it kind of a, an operation. The hologram kit comes with a, uh, a staging stand, which gives you a place to balance a plate, have your subject, and have illumination. 
And the other purpose of this rig is it establishes an angle between direct illumination and incident illumination so that you have basically reflected light, laser, laser light hits the subject, hits the plate, and this is important, laser light directly hits the plate. Because what we're doing is we are capturing on a photographically sensitive plate interference fringes of the difference in the light path between straight path and our obstacle. And if you magnify a hologram, you'll see it looks like fingerprint ridges, and those are interference patterns. Um, if you look at it even more closely with this kind of rig, you'll see uh, speckle patterns is what they look like, but they tend to organize in random furrows that look a lot like fingerprints. And it's the speckle pattern that's the part that matters. The, you expose the plate. It takes, um, with the ones in this kit, about 5 to 15 minutes of exposure. You, you go into a dark room, open the plate, stick it where this plain glass plate is, hit the switch, and illuminate the subject, and let it go for several minutes. And then when you're done, these are interesting plates. These are nothing like what Dave would have used in the past. You would literally make up a, a, like a wet glass plate as they did 100, 120 years ago for regular photography. And you would treat it like you would treat any piece of film, totally dark room, expose your film, develop your film, and then stabilize your film, you know, all, all the standard chemical baths. This has a proprietary, so they don't tell you what it is, chemistry in it, so they're dry plates, and you basically can't overexpose them because the act of exposing consumes the chemicals in the photosensitive layer. So as long as you basically open the box in a dark room, set it up, and then only either use low red light, like uh, they, they provide a little red um, LED flashlight, um, you hit it with the laser so that they're, you know, less than 1%. This, this, this LED flashlight is so minimally powerful, it can't trigger the chemistry, but a, a regular room light could. But the intense light comes out of the laser, exposes the plate, and if you leave it on for 20 minutes instead of 15, it doesn't overexpose the plate because the chemicals are already all used up. But the important part is you can't move anything. And I don't know if this may have been Dave's problem. You can't speak. You can't move. The room can't shake. For instance, I wouldn't want to try to make it in here with that noise going on outside. That's too noisy. That much vibration will cause these tiny interference lines to blur. And unlike a shaky camera, where if you take a shaky picture, it looks like what you took a picture of, but just doesn't look very good. If these interference lines overlap, you get no hologram. You get no image at all. So it's not just it looks bad. It just doesn't happen, which is what you had, which is why I think that's what happened. It, it, it is actually difficult to do holography. They've simplified this by giving you a, a, a fixed space rig, and the instructions say every page, do not talk during the exposure. You know, do not you know, move in the room, because the act of literally going back and forth causes air currents. Turn off the air conditioning. Air handlers will produce air currents that will produce enough vibration to ruin the effect. The, uh, the, those interference lines I mentioned, uh, you can pack 50 of those into the width of one human hair. So any vibration of a fraction of a hair on the glass plate, on the subject, on the laser, will ruin the effect. But that said, if you can get a stable place, quiet place, a dark place, um, I'm looking forward to, 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 to making quite a few of these. Oh, something else they recommend is, because it's a red light, they recommend a red subject. If you use a blue or a green subject, it's not going to show up very well because it will just absorb the light. It won't reflect the light onto the plate. Because, again, you're going for that difference between direct path and indirect path. And then to, ex to expose it, to, to, sorry, to reveal it later, 
once you've actually made the hologram, you simply take the object out and in the same arrangement, at the same incident angle, what happens is the, you now have fresh light only from the laser hitting your plate and what the, the result of that is this light hits the existing interference patterns and those provide constructive and destructive interference and what falls out is the image of what used to be here. So the combination of, the, of light from here and light from here make the interference. The combination of light from here and the interference reproduce the image of the object. And let's see, what do we have? A little bit of time, good. Um, this is just a little toy. Um, there's various kinds just like it, but it's a, a little laser toy game. Whoops. The original gameplay is you're meant to set up and take turns placing the mirrors and doing various things. And the, the idea is you want, you want the little laser pointer here to uh, trigger off light to, uh, to, um, uh, it's, these are, these are hard to align. Yeah, well, this, this is only meant to go for a burst. It's a, it's a time pulse. So I'm going to try, um, I'm going to try this from here. I mentioned before about the distance. You're meant to play on the table and, and work in here and, and turn these around and take turns placing these. But over here I have just an ordinary laser level. The kind you would do, you, you know, you'd use at home in construction. And if I've got this lined up right, there we go. So, like I said, distance, the power, no problem. Run it through a little bit of a light path, easy to work with. Um, last thing I wanted to mention is if you do get in, into experiments, one of the fun things you can do is work with putting mirrors on speakers, putting mirrors on motors. If you remember the, the older laser shows, like the ones in the middle, they tended to be a single color. They weren't the newer, fancier, multicolor laser shows. And they tended to be lots of what they call Lissajou figures that you'd see on oscilloscopes as well. And those are quite easy to make. You effectively position one uh, galvanometer, as they're called, or one, um, one, one mirror that, that's, that you can change the motion of at one angle, and you place another one 90 degrees to it. So the idea is that the laser comes in this way. The first device only changes light on the, on the y-axis, for example. The second one is oriented so that it only changes light on the x-axis, and the combination of the two, you get sort of a zigzag light path out the other side of the box, and you can do things like, if it's on a motor, you can have them spin and wobble, and you get one to wobble up and down, one to wobble side to side to get, that, get those sorts of figures, or if they're on a speaker cone, you could, for example, play a sine wave that will cause the speaker cone to go in and out, and you change the phase and the frequency relationship between the two speakers, and you get different patterns in the light. And that's how they did those shows 30, 40 years ago. And, and it's not really that hard. There's, there's plenty of places to look on the internet for how to build your own uh, laser light show box with, with a single laser. But one of the important parts about those is, um, if you look at a regular ordinary mirror at home, you're looking at the glass front face and the silvering, the reflective layers on the backside, and that's to protect it so you can clean the glass and you don't scratch the reflective coating. The problem is if you think about a laser going through it, the laser hits the front of the glass, 
And because of the difference, it's called an index of refraction between air and glass, the light takes a little bit of a bend, then it hits the reflective layer, reflects, hits that air to glass barrier again and changes direction again. And what ends up happening is it scatters the beam. So effectively what ends up happening is one beam goes in and three beams go out, a primary beam and two ghosts. And the way to fix that is you use what's called a front surface mirror where the reflection is on the side you're looking at. They're touchy, you can easily scratch them. They're hard to keep clean and they can be expensive, but if you ever have taken apart an ordinary flatbed scanner, one of the things you'll see in the scanner is a handful, two or three or four, strips of mirror that are used in the scanner. And because they also don't want to have ghosting going on, it's all front surface mirror. And so literally, I just harvested these, these hunks right out of an old HP scanner. And let me see if I can get this to work. I'm going to try to project some on the ceiling and show the difference. There's a nice dot, and that's the front surface. Oh, no, I'm backwards. This is the front surface. And that's the back surface. Unfortunately, it's really hard to tell the difference because my hand is shaking, but if you were to look up close, it's, it's a little easier to see at the mirror. So sadly, this isn't working in, in a room that's, that's this bright. But the effect is real. And if you, if you get to a dark room and you, and you work with it yourself, you can tell the difference between which side the mirror is facing and which side is not. So that's what I've got for demos. Whoops. Uh, questions? And where's our guy with the, there you are. Ah. Anyone, questions? Uh, did you hear about the um, the new weapon that the Navy just put in? Uh, actually, military deployed laser to shoot down aircraft. I did catch a little bit about it, but I didn't read the details. Um, I, but I, I did I did read that the Navy was planning on beginning to equip uh, vessels with uh, anti-aircraft lasers was uh, imminent. And they just deployed I believe. Far out. Anybody else questions? Anybody awake? Well, I guess we've got a few minutes, so if anybody wants to come up and have a look at things a little closer, it'd be a good time for that. Um, thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed it. So yeah, hopefully that's been an eye opener. Uh, an eye opener for you is it certainly uh, should be for many uh, who think that uh, their their cameras can uh, foil specific lasers. Now you can foil the laser as well with a gold. <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm not going to give you the keys to the kingdom without telling you how to protect it. You can use a an exotic material like silver or gold over your camera lens to protect that. Uh, I would put a focal lens uh, over in front of that to protect your camera lens as well. But uh, 
there are other exotic materials that you can use uh, to protect your camera lenses as well uh, against laser attacks. Uh, but uh, for the most part, I would say uh, pretty much every camera currently, except for uh, yeah, pretty much every camera is uh, vulnerable to laser attacks. Uh, you can prevent them, as I just mentioned, uh, and uh, I, I by am no means a camera expert, uh, and there are probably 10,000 and 10,001 more uh, varying uh, methods to protect your uh, camera lens from a laser attack. But uh, look for that to come soon to a camera near you uh, as someone uh, with uh, malintent uh, wishes to disable your camera. Uh, with that said, that's, uh, that's it folks. I'm going to wrap it up. I've got, uh, a new journey to begin, uh, tomorrow as well. Looking forward to that. Uh, and as I said, uh, I'm going to sit down, uh, uh, and, uh, actually, uh, have some seafood, <laughs> got some flounder coming up and hush puppies. Come on. Uh, with that said, uh, I, I just wanted to uh, say thank you for tuning into the show. Uh, I'll be back next week with show number 112. And until then, please take care of yourself. Use your skills and your knowledge for things that are good. And try to smile at someone and tell them that uh, you love them, you know, right? That's what it's all about. And until next week, uh, I'll see you later. Okay, bye.
Just a shame. 